and back to what you were saying about the intuitive writing component, once we absorb so much of the craft, and that's why we do conferences and we do things like Story Grid and Save mm-hmm. the Cat and all mm-hmm. of these things that we learn all of these things so that we can intuitively apply them. Great to explore theory, but then you have to apply it and implement it. And one of the things that I found, especially in coaching writers, is that, and this is something I say all the time, I've I've been told I should get t-shirts made. Process is personal. So if you come at story from more of a granular, this is how I want to build my scene, or if you come at it from a right your way in to know the character and then assess it to see what it's missing, that's all process is personal. How you get to the end with a solid story that resonates with readers is all up to you. We're just providing all these tools and these opportunities for support to get you there. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, and also along that process, learn how to master the writing craft so that they can write the best manuscript possible before querying that dream literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and developmental editor who loves to work with writers who want to learn how to blend passion with business. I deeply believe that writing is a lifelong craft. And I love to help those writers who want to dig deep in the learning process in order to grow their writing skills and start to learn how to write in order to implicitly apply it to their actual story writing. And at the same time, I know that traditional publishing and publishing in general can be an extremely intimidating and overwhelming process. And I don't want your feelings of intimidation or any doubts and that you can do this be what holds you back. So that's why I created this podcast, because I want to make those resources more accessible and relatable for you. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. It is going to be a deep dive first chapter analysis on one of my favorite books that I read in 2022, although it came out in 2020. It was a New York Times bestseller and up for numerous awards. It is Matt Cakes' The Midnight Library. This book, I just related to it in so many ways. I love how it deals with grief and I love how it deals with emotional journeys and struggles. One of my favorite parts of this book, which is speculative fiction that is not quite so speculative, but really contemporary with that little it factor, that little thing that makes it special, the world, that little piece of magic, which of course is going to be the Midnight Library. I'm especially lucky and excited to bring this episode to you because it gave me this wonderful opportunity to connect with and learn more from a fellow book coach in the Author Accelerator program. Her name is Sharon Skinner, and she specializes in speculative fiction. So who better than to do a deep dive analysis on the speculative fiction book than another book coach who specializes in that? Sharon Skinner is the author of nine novels, and an assortment of other fiction. She writes fantasy, science fiction, paranormal, and the occasional stem punk for audiences of all ages and is an active member of SCBYI, or the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. She also serves as the regional advisor for SCBYI in Arizona. As a freelance editor and book coach, Sharon helps writers get their stories out of their hearts and heads and onto the page. 
Her latest book, Blood from a Rose, is a short fiction and poetry collection of dark fantasy and light horror with some humorous twists. Sharon also served abroad the USS Jason, the first U.S. Navy vessel to take women to sea or the West Pacific cruise. To learn more about Sharon, visit SharonSkinner.com or BookCoachingBySharon.com, both links which I will include in the show notes. Without further ado, thank you again for joining us. Let's get into the first chapter deep dive analysis of the first two chapters, or we're going to call it Prologue of the Skies, in chapter one of Matt Haig's The Midnight Library. Hi, Sharon. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited. I'm going to hold the book up. I know it's a podcast, but today we are going to analyze The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. And this was a wildly popular book, probably still is a wildly popular book, a New York Times bestseller. I know it was up for a bunch of awards as well. And I'm really excited to have Sharon with me here today because she specializes in genres like The Midnight Library as a book coach. So thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me, Abigail. I'm really excited to dig into this and to learn as well as have a deeper conversation about books, which is my thing. I love to talk about books. That's my favorite part of these deep dive episodes and why I did in the beginning of the podcast. I just recorded them alone and I was like, I need to be talking to people. I like to talk to other book coaches and editors and writers. So I'm with you on that. And I think it's going to be great. And if you haven't heard these first chapter deep dive analysis episodes on Lit Match, they do follow a structure. We have some organic conversation that comes out of that. But what we're looking at is to see how the first chapter speaks to the big picture, how it sets up expectations for the big picture. And we use seven key questions to analyze first chapters from Paula Munay's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then we're going to go, we're basically going to zero in on the scene and look at the scene structure or the micro level or a small picture, whatever you want to call it, as the second half of this episode. So we'll start with big picture. We'll go into small picture. And if there is more room for more discussion, which I'm sure there will be, we'll get into that as well. If you're ready, Sharon, we'll go ahead and jump into that. Very ready for this. <laughs> Great. This was a book that we talked about that we wanted to do together as an analysis. And you said you were going to move it up on your book list. I'm excited that you did. So I just wanted to first get your reaction to this book. What did you think about it? Yes, I I moved it up on my TBR pile so that we could have this conversation. And I'm really happy that I did. There's so much symbolism and metaphor in this, and that's right up my alley. My background, really, for writing, I come out of a poetry background, and that's a very close-to-the-heart kind of writing for me. Mm -hmm. And there's also just so so much layering in this book. And I just loved all of that. And I really, really enjoyed reading this book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. This was one that I had seen flying off bookshelves. I believe it came out in 2020. So I had seen it, you know, across bestsellers since it came out. And it took me until beginning of the summer, I think, of this year. So 20, we're in 2022 now, right? So. Yes. Beginning of the summer of, of 2022, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, how did it take me this long to read this book? Because it speaks to so many things that I love. I love books that deal with grief. I've experienced depression in my life before, so that really hit home in certain areas with that. And I think that the character was authentic and how she was exploring different avenues with that. And at the end of the day, it's a book about hope. 
So, you know, books that deal with grief but end with hope are always winners in my bookshelf. So <laughs> I'm excited to get into it and just to examine why this book does a good job starting off and kind of in an extraordinary way that's maybe not typically how most books open. We'll go ahead and get into the big picture. Before that, I'm going to read a quick summary of the first chapter. Now, Sharon and I went back and forth a bit because there is a first chapter that is not a prologue, but kind of is a prologue. <laughs> so they don't label it as a prologue, but both Sharon and I did see this as a prologue. And that is the, a conversation about rain. So that's the first chapter. And then there's a segment of 19 years later, there's another chapter called The Man at the Door. So when I was looking at this, I felt like a conversation about rain was a prologue in disguise, though not labeled a prologue. And then the second chapter, I actually called the first chapter, The Man at the Door. What did you think, Sharon? Did you have similarities in that viewpoint? I absolutely agree that it is a disguised prologue in many ways. And I thought it was extremely clever not to call it a prologue. So none of the chapters in this book are numbered. They're only labeled, which is also fascinating to me. Not every book can get away with that and mm -hmm. make it work, especially in the adult literary genre. So I think it works really well. And yet I thought it was a little sneaky mm -hmm. that the prologue was not labeled as a prologue, but I think it's important. And I think that was a wise choice because readers, as we know, gasp, sometimes mm -hmm. skip prologues. They don't read everything from the first page to the last page, like some of us. Right. And I think you miss a lot if you mm -hmm. don't read this prologue. There's a lot packed into this first scene, this first chapter, if you mm -hmm. will, of this book. And I think it would be difficult to really, really enjoy the book at a high level, as high a level, if you skipped that. Yeah, I agree. A conversation about rain, it hints at a lot of big, even thematically, messages that we're going to explore it really sets up Nora's character. Nora is the protagonist and the main character that we follow throughout the story. So I will give a brief explanation of what happens in a conversation about rain. And then the majority of my synopsis was based on the second slash first chapter, The Man at the Door. In a conversation about rain, essentially what we see is 19 years before we're going to see Nora in present day. And she is in a school setting and she's basically playing chess with a librarian who seems like a very close friend slash mentor. Her name is Mrs. Elm and she's playing chess. And during this chess game, it seems like Mrs. Elm is fishing at what does Nora want to do for the rest of her life. And Nora is talking about certain things or certain opportunities that maybe she's pushed aside, different things that she's interested in. It's a very like factual based conversation. Mrs. Elm has a warmness to her, but also a strictness to her. She's a very endearing character in that way. And that scene ends with a phone call that we don't know what has happened, but we assume that it's something devastating and relates to Nora because of how Mrs. Elm turns around and basically exclaims, oh, no, oh, no. So the assumption is that something terrible has happened that is going to impact Nora tremendously. Then 19 years later, when we have the man at the door, we have a fuller scene in this sense. And I'll explain what I mean when, when I say fuller scene when we get into the micro analysis. But the man at the door, I said, we start now 19 years later with Nora Seed, our main character, 
and it is 27 hours before she dies. And actually, for a lot of these beginning or act one scenes, the chapters do actually start up with a time countdown to where Nora is going to die. So it says 27 hours before she decided to die. And then it explains, you know, the rest of that first sentence. So here we have Nora. She's sitting on her sofa. She's scrolling through other people's happy lives. And then all of a sudden, this man named Ash rings her doorbell unexpectedly. Ash is someone who asked Nora out for coffee at some point. At that time, she was dating another man. So she turned him down, but she doesn't really know why he's here. At the same time, she's feeling self-conscious with how she's dressed. And yet she also feels very lonely. She, so she kind of feels relieved that he has rung her doorbell and hopefully is, is there for some reason other than the reason that he's actually there for. It looks like Ash has been out for a run. They have an awkward conversation. And then Ash interrupts this conversation to ask Nora about her ginger tabby Voltaire. And she confirms that she does have a ginger tabby. She's, his name is Voltaire. She calls him Volts. And Ash says that he thinks that Volts has been hit by a car and is, has been killed. So Nora goes out to see if Volts has been hit by a car and is killed. Unfortunately, that is true. And as she stares at Volts, she feels immense pity for her cat. But at the same time, the last sense that we get is that she also feels envious. And that's chapter one. All right. That's like good synopsis yes thank you <laughs> there's a lot going on a lot of big emotions and you know it's really interesting because the way that matt Hag writes is that these his chapters tend to be very short he gets right to the point so we're not looking at 10 page chapters here i think this is literally three pages yeah one two three pages for the man at the door the other one is two pages almost more like one and a half so he does write with quicker scenes. The pace is pretty quick, but there's a lot of emotions, I think, packed into these scenes. And it's pretty powerful how he does that. To look at this now, Sharon has talked about how she sees the prologue as chapter one. I kind of have a combination of prologue and chapter one is, is what we're going to look at is the big picture. Again, with writers, I like to emphasize there's no right or wrong to analysis. There's subjectivity to analysis. And it's important to understand what we're looking for and so that that can help us in our writing. But even if we have different analysis, it doesn't mean that there's like a right or wrong response to this. I like to emphasize that. We'll get into the seven key questions. And that first question, Sharon, deals with genre. So the question is, what kind of story is it? And how does the first chapter or the prologue in disguise, how does that indicate what genre it is? I struggled a little bit with this because knowing when, you go in, when you're going into reading a book or after you've read a book, you know what genre it is. But just reading that first chapter, you know, it's contemporary setting. It feels and sounds a little literary, but it doesn't give me the spec fic vibe that I would have expected from that initial or even in that the next scene or next chapter that, that you gave the synopsis on. You mm -hmm. don't really get that vibe from it initially. So I think this one was a little hard to peg from just what we were what we're an an analyzing here. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that this is a speculative fiction book. And I'd like to talk a little bit about an article that was shared. I forget who it was shared by, but both Sharon and I are in Authors Accelerator in the Mighty Networks group. And there was another 
book coach who shared this article about speculative fiction and it's called it's by Diane Callahan and I will share it in the show notes. It's a wonderful article and I was really glad that she wrote this and it's called What is Curio Fiction? And she's labeling this as curio fiction as a subcategory of speculative fiction. And I just was so thrilled that she wrote this and that unknown book coach who I should know, thank you to whoever shared it in Mighty Networks, did share this article because this is what I'm writing. And I always have trouble figuring out how to explain what I'm writing because it doesn't quite feel like totally speculative fiction. Was there a subcategory in it that could be had the speculative fiction? But basically, curio fiction, I'm just going to read verbatim from this article. And again, I'll share this. And it says, curio fiction fits snugly under the broad umbrella of speculative fiction. Simply defined, it is a story set in a world identical or similar to our own, whether that setting is contemporary, historical, or near future, with a twist, an added fantasy, science fiction, or horror element that is examined for its effects on the story's human characters. Not all stories will fit into genre or subgenre boxes, and there are always overlapping categories. And that's the end of the quote. Then what this does is it talks about five ways to define if within the speculative fiction genre, you can say that this is curio fiction. And again, go to this article for full context. But those five elements are it takes place in the real world, real world setting. Two, it explores a story defining speculative element, a curio that's one notch off from reality. Three is the magic isn't usually defined as part of a global system or the speculative element relies on a hand weavium scientific explanation. Four is humans are the primary focus. And five is the story is less concerned about the mechanics of the curio and more interested in its effects on relationships and social systems. And it uses the Midnight Library in this article as the example. I think this is what this does, because exactly what you said, Sharon, we don't really see like those magical elements in these first chapters. This feels very much contemporary based on the context of how it's written. But if you look at that curio fiction, it is saying that we need to be set in a real world setting and that humans are the primary focus. And I do think it does that because it's basically really labeling us as this is going to be about Nora. And this is contemporary. And then that one-off notch is going to be the magic library. So the kind right. of the world between worlds, which we don't get into until act two. Right. <laughs> it we, takes, a- takes quite a while to get there. And so pegging that genre at the in- outset, you're not sure. If you know going in that, you know, you're in the specific world if you know anything about the book. But yes. And I do think that the moments where it says so many years before she decided to die is a nice hint that we know that she's decided to die and something's going to happen. Yes. But it still doesn't full on give us that. But I, I love that article too, that curio fiction. Mm. You know, genre is, and this is just something that I talk about with my clients a lot. So I want to just jump in. I know it's a little side tangent. Genre is just a way to slice and dice everything so that we can market it or target our readers. Yes. And it initially was done for purposes of marketing. Mm -hmm. Marketers said, well, where do we put it so that people will find it? And I like to say that in the beginning, there was the book and then there became the book and kids books. And then then you just slice and dice from there. And you had the nonfiction and the fiction and the speculative fiction used to cover all these things, but there 
was not a lot of categories under it. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a lot more of that slicing and dicing under speculative fiction now than we used to see, which is why I was really appreciative of that article that you just referred to. Absolutely, Sharon. You and I just speak the same language on this. I agree with you completely. You know, and I, I think that that is a really important distinction to make when you are classifying genre because there's commercial genre, like what you said, exactly. How do I market this? Where is it fitting on a bookshelf? If it's selling in a bookstore, where does it go? If it's going to sell on Amazon, what is it labeled under, right? And then there's content genre. So for writers who are trying to figure out content genre, thinking more of story type. And I do think that you can figure out story type based on these two openings. And the combination that I do with is I would say that this is probably going to be a worldview maturation genre. If I were to guess, we're going to have some sort of Nora is in a dark, dark place. Is there going to be a change in her black and white view that's going to either destroy her or free her? Really, right? Depending on if there's a shift in her character, in her belief system. And then also on an external scale, of course, there's always a variety of external and internal storylines that go along with stories. But I think we're actually dealing with more of an action story because we're dealing with the value of life and death as hented by 20, what was it, 27 hours before she dies, right? So Nora is going to be a place where she actually tries to take her life. But in the chance that when she's in between worlds in the library, it's going to be about her survival. And as the stakes go forward and the library starts to fall apart around the midpoint, we know that time is running short. And is she or is she not going to survive? We don't really know. And that pressure cooker is on. Agreed. All right. So let's look at question number two. And question number two is about plot. The focus is plot. The question is, what is the story really about? And you just kind of went over a lot of that. It's a life and death, death kind of story. But I think it's learning to actively live and not regretting the roads not taken. Mm-hmm. And I think Nora comes to understand that in the moments when she's dropped into her other other possible lives, it's also about learning to, like I said, actively live. Yes. I think that at the beginning, and you see this in in the initial outset, that Nora has retreated already from the world a little bit in that first scene that we're calling the not prologue. Let's call it the not prologue. And she's already retreated from the world and she's looking at all of her options, but she's not making any active decisions to go with any of those options. She's, in fact, actively opting out. And so I think for me, this story is about learning to actively choose life, to actively live. That's what I really got out of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think it deals a lot with regrets. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where so many people, when we enter anything with multiverse, there's always this fascination of, oh, if I had made this decision, maybe my life would have been grass is greener on the other side this way. So we constantly question that. And if we do question that, I think it's preventing us from actively living. And essentially, that is exactly where Nora is. So it's interesting to ask the idea of, what is this story really about? And going back to what really makes, because I would call this the the main, I would say the main content does focus on more of the emotional journey, the worldview story. I think it deals first with character. I think Nora really leads the plot versus plot leading Nora, which are my favorite stories. So I think it's that kind of idea of the question then being, what is her black and white view 
that is preventing her from living actively in the beginning. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think that she, well, she's afraid of life. Mm-hmm. You, she's sheltering in that library. Mm-hmm. That's the initial outset that I got is that she's actually withdrawn and is sheltering in that library. And so she's actually afraid of life. And to me, that sets up a nice black and white view of life that life is scary. Life is a dangerous place. Making choices about your future, that is scary. Mm-hmm. It is something she doesn't want to do. And so life ends up happening to Nora rather than Nora happening to life, which goes back to the kinds of stories you and I both like. We like the kinds of stories where our protagonists are acting and the plot comes out organically from that rather than the plot being something that a character has been plugged into and then just goes through the motions. And and that is not to say that plot-driven stories are not good. There are plenty of them and there are plenty of emotional plot-driven stories. But the ones that resonate with me the most have both but come at it from character. I agree. And I, I love stories like this. And I think that they're so important in everyone's lives because it can be really easy to go through life and to go through life as we go through the motions. And fiction gives you this chance, this beautiful opportunity to dramatize. And because of the dramatization, we force characters into situations where they have to do something, right? There is no option other than to do something. So it can help be replicas of maybe better ways of living, which I think is a really beautiful testament and beacons of hope, again, of what life could be if we can live a little bit more fully within a world we accept as imperfect. Yeah. So to go back to the black and white, I think it's life or death for her. Mm -hmm. There's no in between. There's no there's no middle ground of, you know, buy your ticket, take your ride kind of progress for her. It's life or no life. Yeah. It's interesting because we don't I don't think we ever get really a full explanation of what is the library other than what the library is. We don't know like how it exists or any of that. We don't get rules about the library other than what you can do with the library. We don't understand how it's designed or made, you know, on a supernatural level. So part of what's interesting with that is that you look at Nora and I feel like when she decides to try to take her life, she's really in this place of, I want to want to be alive. You know, it's this like one step removed. It's I want to want to be alive. And that's almost like why she goes to this library place. You're not quite done yet. Like, yeah, yeah I, there's more. I think that's beautiful. I think that's, you've really nailed that, that emotional arc of her being depressed and being, you know, in that space where things don't make her happy. And we get the sense of that initially, not during the man at the door, but initially in one of the early parts of the, of part one. Yes. Act one. When her neighbor is looking at the flowers and he loves his, beautiful flowers and she doesn't see the joy Mm -hmm. in these bright colored flowers she's not seeing the joy there yeah and that kind of broke my heart I know I know it's hard because like when you're in a fog you're in a fog the only way through the fog is through it you know yeah yeah okay so the third question is point of view focused and the question is who is telling the story well this is third person POV but it's a narrator because (laughs) it's a narrator telling the story about Nora. And that's really clear. It's the voice of that is very clear right off, you know, especially with the headers or the beginnings of the sections. So many years before Nora decided to take her life, you know, Mm -hmm. or decided to die. 
that is real clear to me. And mm-hmm. it's it allows for a certain level of uh, omniscience. Yes. So that we get inside some of the other characters as we go along. So there's not a lot of having to move back and forth by scene. It's a very great example of how you can do omniscient and head hop and do it beautifully, I mm-hmm. think. But you've got to have a handle on your craft. Yes. That authorial voice when writing omniscient narrator is super important because they have to take on this completely different voice than the character. And it's so interesting because in the Midnight Library, you do stick very closely to Nora. So it's this flirtation of are we third person omniscient limited close? Are we third person omniscient? You know, it's like we're really gravitating. I mean, the heavy percentage, I don't know an exact number, but the heavy percentage of time, if not all the time in Nora's focus, like in her perspective. We don't really go to Mrs. Elm. There's not really that. It's not one of my favorite authors of all time, Frederick Backman. It's not like his Baritone series where you're going to have omniscient and you're going to have different focuses at different characters at different times and sticking closely to those. So it is interesting. I've just started to appreciate point of view more and more as I become a book coach and started to focus on this because I think in the beginning of my writing craft career and my editing, I always thought, just pick a point of view, you know, just just pick one and just go with it. And while that's a good that's good advice to start, because I don't want point of view to hold you up from writing ever. At the same time, there needs to be intention with the choice, because how the story is told is going to navigate the emotional journey and the events that's happening to that character as you move forward. So I do think if you were in first person with Nora, I don't think the book would have worked as well. And part of that is because she's depressed. And it's one of those things like that's going to blind her viewpoint of certain things. You almost needed that one step removed because as a reader, we want to feel like we can experience everything vicariously through her, but at the same time, have a greater awareness of the life itself that is causing her to make decisions, everything that's happening in that. I always say the great Gatsby, it has to be Nick Carraway. It can't be Gatsby because he would be too romantic. You know, you do need some sort of removement, even if we are closely following Nora more than any character. I agree. But I also want to point out (laughs) that what something you just said, I want to go a little further. When you talk about the distance, third person gives you more narrative distance opportunities. So you can close in, you can move out. And there are all these different levels of narrative distance that you can get in a story like that. And I think that was absolutely necessary for this story, as you said, because, you know, I don't think Nora would have been a a character who we could trust. I think she would have been a complicated person to see the world through. And I don't think we would have gotten that heartbreaking moment of her seeing the flowers as emotionally impactfully as we did if it was just her saying, oh, I see the flowers there. I, I, I don't get it. Right? Right. That's a great point. Thank you for taking it further. And it is a perfect segue into the fourth question, which deals with character. And the question, this is always my favorite question, which character should they care about the most? Well, and of course, it's Nora, Nora right. Seed. And I love her last name, by the way, because, again, there's so much symbolism and metaphor, even in her last name. And the choices that Hag made in this are, there's just so much. I can see why it was flying off shelves and why it was up for so many awards. But of course, it's Nora. It's all about Nora. Yeah. And 
talking about the context of these first chapters, like you said, it it is beautiful to have that detachment because you are concerned about her. You know that she's going to make the decision to die. So right off the bat, we're worried about her, I think. And that probably speaks to a later question about emotion. And we understand that she's self-conscious about things. We understand that she longs for life in some way and that's different than the one that she has. And I think that people, almost every person, you know, I'll be bold enough to say every person at some point in their life has that experience. Everyone has difficult moments in life and we all wish, oh, I wish I could pass this moment or I wish this wasn't a part of my experience. Unfortunately, we do have to experience those because life is full of adversity. And of course, the beautiful part of that is if you can make it through that, hopefully you grow and there's even more to give and to be. So already from the get-go, we're worried about Nora, but we're caring about this story because we're hoping, like anything, someone who feels life is hopeless, you hope that they can find that hope again. (laughs) That's where I am with her. And I think the prologue makes her extremely relatable because we've all had to wonder about choices and make Mm -hmm. choices and think about our options. I think we've all kind of played the yes, but game. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's an old from the 70s psychological kind of context where someone will suggest something and you say, but. Mm -hmm. And Nora's playing that with Mrs. L. She's saying, well, you could be a this, but no. And you could be a glaciologist. You could go to the Antarctic. And she's like, but it's not far enough away. And I think we've all kind of done that when we didn't want to make a decision. So I think that makes her extremely relatable. And the fact that she's sheltering from life, whether we know it on a conscious level or not, I think that most of us have wanted to hide from life, as you say, at some point or another. Yeah. And I love that they open up with her in this high school setting. And this is my own personal belief. Kids are placed in positions where they're asked to make a decision about their life at a really young age. And, you know, it's like, I think I had to declare my major when by the end of my sophomore year in college. So I was 21, maybe at that point. Mm -hmm. And that's really young. Like our brains aren't even fully developed at that point. So it's crazy. Here you are having to make these big, huge decisions that are going to be life impacting. And that's why I think a lot of times people don't even use their major sometimes because you're still figuring out life is about figuring out. Writing is a lifelong process, right? Life is a lifelong experience. So when you're along for the ride, you do have to go with it. And it's easy to have this game going on because you mentioned this earlier, We can be afraid of what our decisions might lead to. It might not lead to the scenario that we we most hope for. And it can be hard to make decisions when we have so much uncertainty that's going to follow. And at the same point, like having uncertainty is what makes life interesting. So it's that tricky balance. I love that you say that because that is one of the things I harp on all the time. You know, kids are supposed to pick their college when they're still in high school. And the college that you pick will determine to some extent what you're best able to study. Mm -hmm. So we're asking them not even in their sophomore years of college, you know, okay, that's when you, you know, pick your major. But if you are picking your college in high school, you're supposed to be picking that college based on what you want to be. Yeah. I knew I always wanted to be a writer, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know who I wanted to be when I grew up. And I think that's that's another key in. 
And something you said that I just is perfect is that it's not only the choices that you make, how they will turn out, but how they won't turn out, Mm -hmm. right? We worry Mm -hmm. about that. What if it isn't all I think it's going to be? Yep. I think we put a lot of pressure and expectation on something that is completely not guaranteed in any way. You want to have direction and you want to have focus because having goals helps us move forward. But also we have to be okay if those goals don't play out the exact way that you imagined. Because if you're so focused on this is the only way it's going to work, it's probably going to do you a disservice because you're going to freeze and you're not going to really know what to do with that. And that's, I mean, this is kind of where Nora is at the beginning of this, right? Because she has so many regrets with the decisions that she's made. She's lent herself to a place of great depression based on her experiences. And I think that's relatable, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. So, well, I think that we as book coaches run into it a lot with our writers. You know, what if this doesn't turn out the way that they want? And there's mm-hmm. always that Cinderella idea that, oh, all I have to do is write the book and all I have to do is get an agent. But then you find out that then the agent has to sign. It's always one more step. And I, you know, so e- even for writers that we coach, we have to often help them to breathe through Mm -hmm. these what if it doesn't turn out the way I hope moments, right? Yes, totally agree. All right, great. So question number five is going to deal with setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? Okay, so it has a contemporary current day feel, of course, and we talked about that a little bit. But I also love that that very first scene takes place in a library as Mm -hmm. well as most of the rest of the story, of course, because book person, Mm -hmm. you know, surprise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I love that it's a library and that library is a shelter because when I was a kid growing up, I didn't have really many, if any, real people friends. Mm -hmm. All my friends were books or characters Mm -hmm. in books. And that's where I lived and that's where I sheltered. So I totally relate to the idea of sheltering in a library. And I totally relate to being surrounded by books as an important component of who I am. And I think many readers probably do. Basically contemporary, but I just, the whole idea of the library is just lovely. I love the library. I think it is crucial to being a library. And part of this goes back to, I mentioned Frederick Packman being one of my favorite authors. I saw him speak the other day. And when he said this out loud, I was like, yes, I totally get that. I understand it. And basically what he did was there was a question that asked for other recommendations about what they should have their children read. And he said something along the lines of, bookstores are great. Like bookstores are wonderful. We love bookstores. If you can, you know, buy from a local bookstore. But libraries are gifts because when you go into a bookstore, you feel obligated to pick one book because you only have X amount of dollars. So you have one book to pick. When you go into a library, you have access to everything and you can explore any type of world, any type of scenario, any type of character, any type of source of imagination that you want to help you really find what you love and what you want to experience. And when he said that, I was like, yes, like this libraries are so important because they give someone an opportunity to fall in love with reading 
Nora being placed in the library, she finds the safety and security with Mrs. Elm in the library here while she's in this, these debating situations of what is she going to do with her life. And then she has access to the Midnight Library where she could actually go experience different lives. And part of the magic with the Midnight Library is that Mrs. Elm instructs her that if she wants to choose that life, she can just go on living that life and eventually she'll fall into it and she'll forget her past life and just start living it. It's really that, right? Like she's given access to anything and there's no consequences of that. But of course, because it's Nora, there, and it's a story that's going to have escalating stakes. There will be consequences of that as we go forward. But yeah, I love that it's the library. But isn't that how we experience libraries? We get to go live mm -hmm. all these other lives yeah. with no consequences, except for that there are consequences because we're changed afterward. Right, exactly. Readers come to stories for an emotional experience, right? So, mm -hmm. and the man at the door, 19 years later, we're not in the library, we're in the contemporary setting, we're in her house. The closest context that I could get for a specificity of where she was, was that she had once seen Ash running down Bancroft Avenue. So I'm assuming we are in Great Britain in some way, because I think that Matt Haig is from Great Britain, so I'm, I'm making a broad assumption there. Do you know exactly well, where it is? No, I don't know exactly where it is, but when I listen to the Audible version, yes, it definitely has that UK vibe. feel yeah, okay. and, yeah, and voice to it. So I think that, so the accents and everything. And yes, I got the impression that definitely we were in the UK somewhere and that she was living in a flat, not an apartment kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I know it's really technically just they're, I don't know if it's, it's like, so she has a neighbor and they have adjacent doors, but I got, I felt flat. That's what I was feeling. I don't know if they ever said that. Those context clues that you're picking up on are great because I think one of the things is that setting is important where she is in the beginning, because a lot of the beginning and this kind of speaks to the character. And I actually had, I had watched a couple of book reviews that didn't like this. I was fine with it. But the most of Act 1 is exposition in a way of setting up Nora's character. We are moving the story forward. There are events that kind of emphasize why she is increasingly more depressed, all leading up to this moment of overdose. And then, the, of course, the majority of the story, though, is in the Midnight Library, which is the speculative curio fiction part of this whole story. So that is really where we're going to go with setting in the sense of going, our, I'd say, like our, our center point, where we keep going in and out of the library. So that's really your your main setting is it's the hook factor of this whole book. It's interesting to see this contemporary setting where we might not need exact explanation of where she lives and why she lives it because I think the point of it is that it's supposed to be ordinary so that when we go to something extraordinary that's emphasized. Right. Question number 6 deals with core emotions. The question is how should the reader feel about what's going to happen next? Well, from the get-go we're worried about Nora. We're you know, some of that's because we're being set up for it. I, I will grant you that so many years before Nora decided to die is pretty much going to make you go, oh, and then getting to know her as a character and relate to her, mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. the relatability part. And I think that that's why those initial chapters are important. So mm -hmm. I don't know why someone would not appreciate the getting to know the character because each step of the way, we get to know more and more about her and it. we're moving toward that negative point where she decides to die. And we've got that ticking clock. So we've got a ticking clock in it. 
that mm-hmm. says so many hours before she decided to die and so on and so forth. So I think we're, we're worried about Nora and it's, we should be. And I think that is the core emotion. I agree with you. I had watched that and I was like, I don't really agree with that critique because I actually felt way more immersed in the story because of it. I think that you would lose the whole character if you just went right to the library. If we had chapter two and she's already ODing, like you've lost all of the buildup. It's really interesting that you start with a conversation in Rain. And at the end of that, we get this phone call that we know probably is the beginning of all of the negative things that lead to Nora probably second guessing herself and all of these decisions and that she's making. And I'm worried about her right from there. So I feel like she's very relatable in a conversation in Rain in the sense of Mrs. Elm asking her these things, her feeling not totally confident in what she's going to do with her life, feeling very indecisive or feeling doubtful of making the right choice. The jeopardy of all of this feels very internal in the sense of her pushing away, always making a reason for why one thing is not going to be the best option until we know something bad has happened. So right away from that, we go from that and then a 19 years later page that then starts open with the amount of hours she has left before she decides to die. She clearly from that moment to this moment, in that moment, they were talking about everything that she was really good at. And all the potential that she had, all these wonderful things that you could do. And you can tell that she's smart. You can tell that she's intuitive in a certain way. You can tell that she she is this, I mean, she's almost classified as like potentially this all-American type of person. Or, you know, it's not all-American because it's UK. But this idea of this, this, this person who just has unlimited potential in what she could do. And it's just about making the right choice. And then 19 years later, here she is ready to die. So, yeah, I mean, I, I pity her. I worry about her and mainly especially getting that, of course, like her cat dies. So that's just tragic. I'm a huge animal person. So anytime there's going to be a death of an animal, I am extra upset. I'm really upset about that. I see that she's lonely. I understand that she is in this place of loneliness. She wants Ash to be there. So she's trying to reach out. She just doesn't know how. And here her cat has died. And then she's envious. And that last line If that's not getting you to turn to the next page, based on the core emotion, I don't know what's going to get you to turn a page. I agree. And I think that there is just so much to appreciate in this book of the symbolism, the metaphor, the layering and all of that. And I don't think you would have, well, I know you wouldn't, you would not have that if you didn't have that first act structure, getting to know Nora and her life, because you wouldn't be able to experience her optional lives in the same way. And, and understand them in the same way. So I think that, the, that that setup is crucial to the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's a good segue into our seventh question, which focuses on stakes. And the question is, why should the reader care what happens next? What are the stakes and why should they care about them? Okay, so it's because it's life and death right up there. That's some of the highest stakes you can get. Mm-hmm. And then I think, again, Nora's situation resonates because we've all wondered, what else could we have been? What else could we have done? And so the stakes are pretty high here because the stakes are both physical life and death for Nora, mm-hmm. as well as emotional life and death. And I think that resonates for readers. Yes. I think we care because 
I mean, we care about the stakes of life or death because we care about Nora, right? So it's like, it's one of those things where you're not going to care about if Nora dies, if you don't care about Nora, which is why it's so important that we get to know her and really understand her situation and feel empathy and sympathy and all the feelings that you need to feel for her so that you're rooting for her to find her way back to life and more than life to actively live. I totally agree with you there. And it's interesting to see how those are very psychological stakes, right? I think that the psychological stakes are about the meaning of life. Can she figure out if there's purpose or meaning to life? And will that give her meaning, knowing that answer and not figuring out that answer and accepting that there might not be an answer, that situation. So high, high, high psychological stakes. And then the physical stakes that go hand in hand with that in the sense of if she can't psychologically survive, she will not physically survive. So that covers the big picture with the seven key questions. And now we will shift our focus and take a look at the scene analysis, the structure of a scene, the small picture or the micro picture, whatever you want to call it. This is interesting because we are going to have maybe slightly different answers on what we've come up with. But again, I always like to emphasize with readers, it doesn't matter if we have the same analysis exactly. What matters more so is that we can come into agreement in how the scene has moved the plot forward, developed the character in a way that moves the story forward. If we can come to agreement in that there has been a change in the scene and these are the reasons why. So getting to the same ending is what's really important. And how you come up to that is subjective. Agreed. Before we do a scene analysis, I, we have to decide, are we going to do a scene analysis for chapter one or chapter one and chapter two? And my way of looking at it was, I see it as one scene. I kind of group it. I do chapter one, the prologue in disguise. I combine that with chapter two and I see one scene with that. But really, I think that there's one scene in chapter one, and then it's kind of its own thing in the prologue. So I did my scene analysis just on the chapter one. But what did you what did you see, Sharon? Well, so I struggled with that a little bit because of what you're talking about. And so for the scene analysis, I actually did both mm -hmm. because I wanted to see both of those. So when I dug into this, I looked at for these questions about that we're going to go into next, I looked at both. Yes. And then for the commandments, I looked at both and I found that I was only finding them really in what we're calling chapter one. So I'm happy to approach this however you want, but I kind of went through the process with both of them to get to where I am. Okay. So I think we, it's just, we'll walk through it and then you answer how you did it and I'll answer how I did it and it will just be a comparison. So we'll say what we're calling the prologue again is called a conversation about rain. If you're following with the book, what we're calling chapter one, but it's technically chapter two, we're calling the man at the door. Well, it's called the man at the door. Clarification of what we're looking at. So if you do want to follow along, when we start with it, before we start with any analysis, I do like to look at a couple of Socratic questions. These are some story grid tools that you can use for scene analysis. They're not phrased exactly as story grid, but it's what I like to look for. And what these three questions look for is what's literally what's going on. What does the main character want? So what's the change in character? How do they achieve that goal? And then the third question deals with big picture. So again, I'm always looking for how does the small picture speak to the big picture because they always have to work together. They can't work as separate entities. Question one helps us understand more about 
what is literally going on. And that also helps us clarify with the change in the scene itself, what is the most literal that you can words that you could use for a change in the scene. What do you think, Sharon, is literally going on? And just explain it as you analyzed it. So in the first scene, the prologue, we'll call the prologue, Nora's hiding out in the library. She's sheltering from life. She's worrying about her future. They're playing chess. And there's millions of moves that you can make on a chessboard. And so that is significant to me. And she's having trouble choosing from all her possible options. So she's actively having a conversation with Mrs. Elm about, and as we talked about earlier, you could do this because you're good at this. And she says, but that's not what I want to do. Or you could be good at this or, but it's not far enough away, that sort of thing. So that's literally what I see they're doing is they're playing this game of chess, but they're also playing a psychological game on top of that. Yeah, I agree with you. And then what is she literally doing then in The Man at the Door? In The Man at the Door, when we open, she's scrolling through all the other people's happy lives waiting for something to happen. So again, she's not active. She's not actively living. She's waiting for something to happen to her. So she's literally sitting there looking at everyone else's happy lives <laughs> and expecting a bolt out of the of nowhere or whatever to maybe happen to her or maybe not. She's not actively living. So again, she's sheltering from the world and not engaging. That's great. I love hearing your perspective. It's always fun to hear another person's analysis of it. With me, and I'll get into this more when I do the structure with the commandments in the sense of how I broke down the scene, I actually don't think that the five commandments exist in a conversation about rain. And I think Sharon agreed with me on that. I think that it's incomplete, which is okay with me because I think it was a prologue in disguise. And what it was doing was setting up who Nora is and what her what the big messages really are the story. I think that it's incredibly important. And I think that the story would be less so if you took out a conversation about rain for all the metaphorical reasons that you've talked about, the chess pieces, setting up Mrs. Elm, you need her with that, all of those big things. But I don't think that it actually is a full scene. I think it actually stops at a turning point, which is when that phone call comes in. So for me, it it's special but it actually isn't a complete scene. So if I were to group it as a scene, even though there's a 19-year gap, I'd either say it's its own thing, I'm not even going to link it to the scene itself, or I would say this almost works as the exposition of a greater scene that lapses over into a man at the door. And that's where I came to my consensus was I'm just going to do it that way. I think that I could say that this is exposition in the sense that it's providing context, but more deeply so than just exposition. I think people hear exposition and they think that they can just like wipe it out. I There are actual things happening in a conversation about brain. Exactly what you said. There are literal things that are happening. They're playing chess. The phone call comes in. We're getting to see Nora trying to make decisions and not being able to do that. And then I think you flash forward in this 19 years later and she still is unable to make decisions or she's unhappy with the decisions that she has made. For what's literally happening is exactly what you said. She's regretting life in a way, comparing herself to others on social media, whatever it is, as she's sitting in her house. And then what she's literally doing is confirming that her cat has died. So 
When I think about what could be words that could describe that shift, do you think that there are any concrete words, Sharon, that you use to describe the shift from beginning to end on a literal level for the scene, A Man at the Door? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, because she goes completely from being sitting there looking at other people's lives and still not choosing life to then finding herself being envious of her dead cat. In a conversation about rain, if I were to say a literal change, because it's incomplete, I think it could be something along the lines of playing chess to receiving bad news. That's essentially what the literal change is. And then in A Man at the Door, it is, it's like, you know, being a bystander to lives, longing for lives that she doesn't have, I guess, to liking her life even less, I think, at the end when she's when she's seeing Vol dead, right? Yeah. And and it's interesting because it's not as big a shift as you you might see in some books or in right. especially in a, a book that is life or death, but it is a shift. And it's she progressively shifts downward or not downward, I should say downward from positive to negative. And her positive is already negative to start with. That's right. So it's really from negative to more negative to more negative to more negative as she goes along. And so this is a shift from a, a negative position to a more negative position. But now the interesting thing is, is that she goes from envying people's lives to envying something that is not alive. That's right. That's a big shift. That's unique in her as a character, right? This right. is like the beginning of her whole story. Really great points there. The second one, this is maybe the most important question to ask when you're kind of structuring the scene. What does a character want? What is their goal in the scene? Because if we don't know what a character wants or what their goal is, it's really difficult to figure out how the commandments work because that goal needs to either be upset by something and that needs to shift. The approach in achieving that that want or goal needs to shift or a goal needs to be established in some way. So what do you think, if you've looked at both scenes, I'd be interested to hear both scenes, but what do you think Nora wants or what is her goal at the beginning of each of these scenes? Or if you saw it as one scene, what would that goal be that overlies? I struggled with that in that first scene, finding, you know, figuring out what Nora's goal was, except for that. Then I started to think about she just wants to be safe. Mm -hmm. That's why she's sheltering in the library. She wants to be safe and comfortable and she doesn't want to put herself out there. The moment when the boy runs by, either chasing or being chased by someone, there's, again, there's some beautiful symbolism there. And she just looks at that as a bystander. She's looking at someone else's life. She's hiding. And I think she just wants to be safe. I don't think she wants to be hurt. So I think that's her goal initially. I would agree. I think she wants to avoid making a decision. You know, it's like mm -hmm. basically on the most literal level, she wants to play chess with Mrs. Elm and not have to make a decision about her life, right? So Agreed, absolutely, yeah. And that, and that goes back to that safety feature. So then when you look at something like a man at the door, what, do you think that she has a goal or a want in the beginning or do you think that goal or want is established later in the scene? I really felt like Nora wanted a happy life. I think the, the whole idea of her scrolling through other people's happy lives alludes to that. And so to me, I think she wants a happy life, but she's not actively doing anything about it. So still, she's staying safe. So that we've got that initial goal of safety, that fear, that need to not make a decision holds her back from having what she would like to have. She doesn't want to be depressed. She wants to live like other people. Mm -hmm. And I see that in this right from the outset, just the idea of her scrolling 
And then when someone comes to the door and she thinks about not answering it, but she does answer it, we learn that, oh, she was lonely. So it's nice that there's someone there. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I think that the description of happy lives is key in establishing her want. It's not she's just looking through other people's lives. She's looking for other people's happy lives. I think you hit the nail on the head there when Ash comes in and she does debate, does she answer this door or not? She does because she's lonely, because she wants to get there. So it's interesting to see this idea of how would she start as a change based on the events in A Man in the Door. And maybe we could say something like lonely and longing for happy lives or longing for happy lives to even more depressed. You don't have to be super fancy in the description of these change. It's just defending that there is a change. Like you said before, much of this book is going to be negative to double negative to more negative to more negative. We're just going to spiral downwards. I think that whole moment of her answering the door because she is lonely gives us that little bit of hope as a reader that it's going to be okay just so we can get knocked down when she starts to envy her cat who's no longer alive. And I just think that that emotional tug is perfectly balanced and perfectly timed for us to even like her more. And then, wow, now we're worried more. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. All right. And the third question is, we've talked about this really with how it works to the big picture, but I do like to bring it up to basically point out that small picture should always be speaking to big picture. And that question deals with how does the change in this scene impact the big picture particularly how does the main value shift, what would that main value shift be because of this scene and how it impacts the big picture? Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it does. So if we're looking at the prologue, I would say that the main value shift is from uncertainty to this moment of devastation. It's a negative shift. We went from a negative to an even more negative. And the story becomes more complicated from there And also this death, which we don't know it's a death, but come on, we know what that phone call is, right? Right. So it's inferred. It foreshadows Nora's decision to take her life later. Mm -hmm. And But this shift, for me, that shift, while it sets in motion the, the rest of the story, it also sets us up for that beautiful final shift back to positive. Yes which I love, a good ending that brings us back to a moment where it doesn't have to be happily ever after. I just need a ray of hope at the end of a story. Even I always like to say that even the most post-apocalyptic story for me to be satisfying, I need a ray of hope at the end of it. I'm with you. This is why I come to stories. You know, it's like I want to always find the ray of hope and hold that deep into my heart. So I hear you on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, again, when we think big picture, when we think mean value shifts that deal with big picture, we look back to the value shifts that impact content genre. So if we're looking at what I'd spoken about, what I think content genre is in this, we have the psychological stakes, the worldview story. So that's dealing with the idea of a value shift, dealing with like naivete towards sophistication or staying towards naivete or worse than that, like sophistication masses naivete which means you're ending in a cautionary tale and we're looking to move towards sophistication for prescriptive tales. There's that value going on. And then there's also the life or death value. So how are the events, if I was to just say, how is the events going to be pushing her closer towards death? And we know that there's a countdown going down because of how the first sentence opens in each chapter up to the point of her overdose that we're counting down towards death. So 
I think that the changes in this scene deal with something more along the lines of naivete down towards that scale. We're still going down on the, on the naivete scale there. She's, she's being more and more locked in her black and white view. And then I also think that we're moving towards, I would say, maybe like isolation or loneliness towards envying death. What I'd say could work as a value shift here in that scene because of something terrible again happening to her in the man of door, which is her cat dying. So we assume that a death has happened that has kind of been the, the beginning of the end for Nora at the end of the first scene with that phone call. I also assumed it was a death. And here we have Voltaire, who's been killed, and it seems like Voltaire might be the only loving, living force in her life. So another terrible thing has happened. Then in the following chapter, she's going to get fired. So it's just like, yeah, Ugh, like that well, thing is keep happening. In the man at the door at the end of the scene, when she's faced with her dead cat, we've shifted from, again, that negative to negative of not actually living to a close up with death. So yeah. we're we're getting closer. We're moving closer. The first one was a phone call informing. The second one is right there. I love and that so you pointed that out. I feel like we're getting closer as we move along. I think that was a really astute point. Beautifully said. Okay, so once we know those questions, we know what she wants. Now we're looking for what really is going to upset or challenge that want as we move into the commandments. The way that the five commandments can work to help us understand well-structured scenes is that these commandments, I like to say like in StoryGrid, they'll say this is what makes the story work. I like to redefine work as it moves the story forward, it moves the plot forward, or it develops a character. So I do like to see that we have to have events. And this is the main thing that happens in, in a scene. We have to have a turning point event, an action or, or a revelation that forces a character into a crisis decision or a dilemma. Because if, even if they don't make that decision, this is the difference between any decision in a crisis or a dilemma. Even if they don't make that decision, there are consequences to it. So there is no ignoring this. Even though Nora might be more of a reactive or a passive character in the beginning, she's going to be increasingly forced into decision makings that eventually are going to lead to her becoming quite active. So moving in that direction, the first of these commandments is the inciting incident. This is for, in case you don't know what an inciting incident is, this is either causal or coincidental, which means that either a person causes an unexpected disturbance that establishes a goal for a character or basically forces the character to redirect how they're going to achieve their goal, or it's a coincidental and does the same thing. What did you see as the coincidence within what you saw as the scene? The doorbell ring. That's when the doorbell rings, that's the inciting incident for what happens next. Yep. And this is a typical stranger at the door, right? Right. And it happens quite quickly, actually, in that scene. I did mention before, we're looking at two and a half, three page scene here. It is going to happen rather quickly. I think it's within the second paragraph or even maybe in the first paragraph. And if you were to look at a conversation in that prologue scene, did you see an inciting incident in that scene? I was really challenged with that. And that's why I moved to the next scene for the commandments. Yes. I had a lot of trouble trying to find the commandments in that scene. If I had to nail an inciting incident, it would be Mrs. Elm's initial question to Nora. Yes. That's interesting because as I mentioned before, I don't think a scene exactly exists within that first prologue scene. Again, a conversation about rain. If I were to say there was an inciting incident, maybe I'd make it up. Maybe I'd say it's in Medias Reis and that it's her going to Mrs. Elm's office or going to the library, something like that. 
But that's why I thought it was so interesting because in a way, that whole event, since it ends really at a turning point, almost acts as an inciting incident for the grander scene if you combine it with a man at the door because it's the inciting incident that kind of establishes the goal of wanting a different life, right? In that in kind of that way. But it is, it's tricky to analyze because I don't think it exists as a scene. So I like to focus the commandments also at a man at the door and focus with that doorbell ring is a pretty apparent inciting incident. Yeah. She is scrolling through other people's happy lives and he or she has a distraction that's going to create that unexpected disturbance. It is even as clarified as very unexpected. And she can you know, go forward and answer that door or not. So that then usually what happens is you have progressive complications that go from an inciting incident to a turning point. There is a progressive complication with the inciting incident in the sense that she feels that she's not dressed appropriately. You know, she feels very self-conscious with how she's dressed. Does she go into this door or not? But there's really not a crisis decision, in my opinion, here with answering the door or not. But I could see how people could see, again, there is a type of decision that needs to be made. The turning point in a scene, for those who don't know it, is an action or revelation that forces a character into a crisis decision. This is basically the tipping point progressive complication. Some people call it the turning point progressive complication that no longer can be ignored because even to ignore it is going to cause consequences because it's forcing you into that crisis. What did you see, Sharon, as a turning point in the scene? So in the man at the door, I would say her deciding to answer the door because she's been lonely is the turning point. So she's it's setting her up because if she could, if she could have just not answered the door and then she wouldn't know. And this is where it's so interesting because I had a different turning point than you. And this is where I always like to emphasize to writers, don't freak out if you have a different turning point than me or than Sharon. This is all a learning process and there's subjectivity to our analysis. So we use these tools, as Sharon mentioned earlier, as guidelines right? Or that might have been offstage that we were talking about yeah. that. But we, but we use these as guidelines to help us understand and defend that we confidently have created a well-structured scene that develops the character and moves the story forward. For me, when I was looking at the turning point, I saw that she could ignore that doorbell and I felt like she would just kind of go back to scrolling and returning to that. So I felt like it was less a crisis than a turning point of being told that her cat is dead. Because at that point, she's either going to have to get out of the house or stay inside the house. So I saw the turning point as the news of her cat being dead a little bit more forceful as a crisis question. But it's a pretty soft scene. Of course, it's not the context of it is not soft. Your cat dying is not soft. But the idea here of her decision, it felt more like a frozen decision regardless. It felt like something that she was going to have to address no matter what, you know, whatever it is. There weren't going to be the extreme life or death consequences that are threatening her life, it felt like, I guess is what I'm trying to say with this crisis question. What did you think about that? With crisis question, I agree that it's when she hears her cat might be dead is mm -hmm. when I see the crisis though. And, and what's really interesting about that is that for the turning point, I saw that as an emotional turning point. Mm -hmm. And for, for Nora, because I'm so into her as a character, of mm -hmm. course, I'm so, I believe in her as a person because this, this is why books were my friends when mm -hmm. I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I really saw that as an emotional turning point toward 
life and then the letdown. So for me, hearing her cat may be dead was a crisis, was the crisis. Mm, so interesting that you bring that up. So like for me, I felt like the emotional arc was what I was focusing on in the scene. So that would make sense that my turning point was more tied to the emotional shift. The crisis question, I would phrase it more as a crisis question than state it as a point. So I would say the crisis question to her would be more something like, does she believe Ash and go examine Volt's dead body and risk more emotional scarring? Or does she ignore that and maybe have the truth come up later or just pretend like it hasn't happened? So I usually, when I'm looking at crisis, phrase it more as a crisis question than actually state it as a point. But essentially, it's interesting because you and I both have landed on the same crisis, just in different ways. Right, right. Well, and again, it's she hears her cat may be dead. Right. That's right. Exactly. Which then, of course, leads us to the climax. And the climax is the direct action that a protagonist takes on their crisis question. So I think that we both have the same climax here and that it's going to see the cat dead. Right. right. It's going it's going to find Volt's body. I yeah. agree. Yes, that's exactly what I hit on as well. I do see the turning point and the crisis question as the most important commandments in the scene because they are ultimately what turns the value. But you and I had different analysis of that yet got to the same conclusion. So it's interesting, again, like uh, clearly there is movement no matter what option you choose, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And again, it's writing is an art. Fiction is an art. It's there's there are no hard and fast scientific rules behind it. I think that we have a lot of great craft tools at our beck and call, Story Grid being one of them, that allows us to look at the craft and do these kinds of assessments. It's particularly easy to do it on something that's already been written. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to, for someone like me, it's a lot harder to develop the writing, trying to keep all of these things in my mind. But I think once you internalize these tools and you spend enough time with your craft to internalize them, yes. then what comes out of what I call the hopper, my brain, is more organically comes out to meet the guidelines of the craft that we're trying to accomplish. A hundred percent. I think that that is key because, you know, most I will say, like, I, I use the, I like to use these story grid commandments because they help me defend when I think a scene works or doesn't work, or when I see, when I think a scene, a story forward or how the character develops, it helps me, right? Like, this helps me. But at the end of the day, most writers and, you know, published writers are not analyzing story on this level. So it helps for book coaches and writers and all these things. These tools can help you, but they're not going to determine if you become successful author or not, because often we are starting to internalize these and understanding these tools can help us learn that intuitive skill faster, I think. So I think that's where it helps that. I think a main question that I have when I am trying to, because I it could pick, I did think about, do I think it's answering the doorbell or not? I had sat on that as a turning point before, and I, I decided to go with told that she, that Volt was dead as more of a turning point was because I felt like she would, could sidestep the other actions easier than being told that her cat was dead. I felt like that was going to force her more into something that even if she denied it, she would just constantly be thinking about that. I think that was emo be more emotionally upsetting to me to be thinking about my dead cat on the side of the road. 
And then dealing with, can I emotionally go see this when death is clearly something that upsets her, but then yet is making her envious. So it's putting herself in that situation where I felt like with the doorbell and the decision of does she go or does she not answer it? I think that she probably, because she is someone that tends to ruminate on her decisions, I think that she probably would question that. But at the same time, it felt a little bit easier for me, from my opinion, for her to use that more as a complication than the than the dead body of the cat. But, you know, I think it, it's all up for subjectivity and analysis. Well, I think that makes sense. And back to what you were saying about the intuitive writing component, once we absorb so much of the craft, and that's why we do conferences and we do things like Story Grid and Save mm-hmm. the Cat and all of mm-hmm. these things that we learn all of these things so that we can intuitively apply them. Great to explore theory, but then you have to apply it and implement it. And one of the things that I found, especially in coaching writers, is that, and this is something I say all the time, I've I've been told I should get t-shirts made. Process is personal. So if you come at story from more of a granular, this is how I want to build my scene, or if you come at it from a write your way in to know the character and then assess it to see what it's missing, that's all process is personal. How you get to the end with a solid story that resonates with readers is all up to you. We're just providing all these tools and these opportunities for support to get you there. But writers have to understand that I always say if if someone tells you that this is the only way to do it, run. Run fast, run far, and find someone else to talk to about your craft. Yep, I agree completely. Process is personal. I agree that there is not one way to do it. There might be pieces of what you're told is the only way that you can do it that can help you, but there is not one way to doing things. So yes, Sharon, absolutely. And that brings us to the resolution of the scene, which is everything that falls after the climax and ultimately is where the character sits with everything at the end. What did you see as the resolution of the scene? Her moment of envy of vaults. That sets everything else in motion. It really does. It really a, does. It really does. I'm just going to, I think we're going to read it because it's so great. Yeah, she says, so, oh, bolts, oh, no, oh, God. So this is her seeing her dead cat and says she knew she would be experiencing pity and despair for her feline friend. And she was, but she had to acknowledge something else as she stared at Voltaire's still in peaceful expression, that total absence of pain. There was an inescapable feeling brewing in the darkness. Envy. Heavy, 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 heavy stuff. Inescapable. Very emotional. This book is very emotional. It's heavy, but it it is a beacon of hope. I think at the end of the day, it does provide that beacon of hope at the end. You can get through the pain. And I think the narrative voice with that, that narrative distance that we talked about allows us entry, but not so deep that we can't hold ourselves together Mm. through the story. And I think that's really important. That and the pacing, the pacing of the story moves us through at a speed where we're going through her initial act one, you know, negative to negative to more negative to more negative rapidly enough that it, it unfolds in a way that is absorbable and accessible, Mm -hmm. but not overwhelming. I agree completely. Matt Haig does a really amazing job at that, giving you 
this these ups and downs in a way that's digestible for sure. And that brings us to the end of our analysis. Sharon, I am so glad that you said yes to doing this with me. This was super fun. I learned so much from you. You're brilliant. So many great insights there. I'd love to hear from you. For listeners out there, Sharon is a book coach. Why don't you tell everyone what you specialize in and how they can find you? I specialize in speculative fiction for all ages. And you can find me at bookcoachingbysharon.com. And you should. You should go check her out. And I just so appreciate you being here with me and to all the listeners out there. I so appreciate you taking this opportunity to learn and analyze stories with us. Abigail, this was so much fun. And I learned a lot. And I got a lot deeper into StoryGrid than I used to be, which is really a huge benefit for me because that's something I've been wanting to do. So thank you. Thank you once again for joining me on Lit Match. It was a pleasure to bring you this first chapter deep dive analysis of Matt Haig's The Midnight Library. I love any excuse to dig deeper into some of my favorite novels, and I'm really excited that I got to bring you this one with Sharon today. I mentioned in the episode that wonderful article by Diane Callahan. It's called What is Curio Fiction? Finding a Name for a Fantastical Subgenre, and it appeared on Tor.com. I will absolutely link to that article in the show notes. And if you're as excited about curio fiction as I am, definitely, definitely go read that article in the show notes. Please don't miss out. Also in the show notes, you can find all of Sharon's information. And I encourage you, especially if you're a speculative fiction writer of all ages, go ahead and check her out. She's wonderful. And I can't encourage your connection to her enough. I'm currently batching more episodes to give you more writing tips, to do more deep dive analysis and to gather more literary agent interviews for you on LitMatch. All of this, of course, takes time and work, and I'm very excited to do this. But of course, I love to hear from you and to hear more about what you need to help your writing craft or to help you learn more about the business of publishing or the literary agent research process. If you haven't reached out to me and you would like to reach out to me, please reach out at Abigail K. Perry at gmail.com. You can also find me on my website, www.abigailkperry.com. I love to talk books and I love to help writers. Your voice matters. The work that you're doing matters. I understand I've been in that chair as the writer and I'm constantly also in that chair as the editor. And I understand that that process can be as exhausting as it is exhilarating. So please, please, please do reach out to me if you need my support. And if not, then just let me know what's going on because I want to support you anyway. And I'd love to hear from my audience. Also, one last thing, if you haven't had a chance to rate and review the show and you are enjoying it, I so appreciate anyone who takes a couple or a few minutes to do this. This really does mean so much to me. It is the best way at helping me reach more writers like you who want to learn more about how to grow their craft or want to learn more about the literary agent research process and the publishing business in general. What that does when you rate and review the show is it signals to iTunes and to other writers who are looking for this type of content that this podcast matters and can make a difference in their path to publishing and in their writer's journey. So thank you sincerely, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for doing that. It means so much. I look forward to creating and releasing that next episode for you. And until then, continue to enjoy every moment of that writing process. If you're in the query trenches, persevere. If you keep going, you will find that literary agent who is the best advocate and business partner for your writing career. I so look forward to hearing that wonderful news and celebrating your book when it comes out. <laughs>